is American Exception, and I'm Aaron Good. Today, I am joined by journalist Kevin Gastola. Kevin is the author of Guilty of Journalism, The Political Case Against Julian Assange. This book was just published by Mickey Huff and the other good people at Project Censored under their new imprint, The Censored Press. Kevin Gastola, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. So you have written this new book, Guilty of Journalism, The Political Case Against Julian Assange. Uh, if it wasn't true before, it almost certainly is now. You've done more on the Assange case than really anyone else. Uh, and now you've written the book, I would say, on Assange. How did you come to focus so much on this historic and really cataclysmic legal case? Yeah, thanks for the question, uh, and thanks for having me on your show. I started doing this work over a decade ago, and I had the opportunity to be in the newsroom at The Nation magazine as an intern, and it was during the time period when WikiLeaks was putting out this material from Chelsea Manning. Uh, we had the state embassy cables, we had the Afghan and Iraq war logs, and these were hundreds and of thousands of documents. And then later, there were some files, uh, and they were important files, uh, all the detainee assessments of every single Guantanamo Bay military prisoner. And so uh, while I was there, uh, I worked under Greg Mitchell, who was uh, a journalist, a contributor at The Nation magazine. And he had this daily blog that he was populating with all these developments with WikiLeaks, the reaction, the outrage from officials, people from the Pentagon, uh, the rage from the State Department. Of course, at the time, Hillary Clinton was at the State Department. And then you had uh, newspapers that were putting out stories on the diplomatic cables from around the world. WikiLeaks had these incredible partnerships that they established with people country to country so they could make sure that the cables had the most impact. And with all this information available, it wasn't just something that was privately held by the New York Times or privately held by uh, an, a progressive media organization or some kind of journalist consortium. It was there for all of us to dig through. So I took these diplomatic cables and I found many, many stories that I could write about related to what our foreign policy really is as a country. And then from there, as I worked with this information, I found myself pulled into the story of WikiLeaks itself and also the injustice of what was going on with Chelsea Manning, the harshness of the military prosecution, I became one of the only journalists, one of a very few journalists to go to Fort Meade in 2012 and 2013 to cover every phase of the military court-martial, which included a trial against her that ended in a 35-year prison sentence. It was a very harsh military prison sentence. Even Barack Obama, as president, acknowledged it himself when he commuted Chelsea's sentence later, and it was one of his last acts as a president, uh, and she was convicted under the Espionage Act. And from that point, 
uh, as I as I dug into the war on WikiLeaks, as I followed what we did know, because we did know that there was a grand jury investigating WikiLeaks, and we were waiting to see if there would be some kind of indictment against Julian Assange, but nothing ever came out of that during Barack Obama's time in office. I followed the aggressive prosecutions of whistleblowers, people who were accused of leaks by President Obama's administration, by his Justice Department under Attorney General Eric Holder. And I also you know, became aware of the different intersections of the national security state and their efforts to make sure that we learn as little information as possible about what our government is doing domestically when it comes to imposing security, uh, and also when it comes to trying to control the world and pursue foreign policy, whether that be through interventions like uh, the invasion of Iraq, where we're just marking the 20th anniversary of that in 2003, but also uh, it could be through acting as a salesman for a corporation. Uh, there are all kinds of different examples that pop up in this work. And so, uh, so, so yeah, and from there, when Julian Assange was indicted in 2019, naturally, uh, having covered these cases so closely, I had to continue my work. And in following Julian Assange's extradition case, I had all this material that I could put together into a book. And the goal, I'll end with this point, the goal for this book was while there are other books out there that people can get. There's a Niels Meltzer book. It's a really fantastic book on the political persecution of Julian Assange. There's a book by a colleague and friend called Secret Power, WikiLeaks and Its Enemies. Uh, Italian journalist Stefania Marizzi wrote this book. And these are all, all good books, but what I wanted to make sure my book was different than those is to say for a, particularly a US re, for US readers, and people around the world, this is what will happen if Julian Assange is brought to the United States and put on trial. This is the information you will need to know in order to follow that trial if it would happen. And you can see in the book, I deconstruct the indictments, I go through it, I bring in the backstory, the history of Chelsea Manning's case and what's relevant to this current case. And I break it all down very clearly and methodically so that people can follow the case if, in fact, the U.S. government is going to take that step forward and actually fly Julian Assange to the U.S. and put him on trial. Yeah, your book is uh, extremely useful for anyone who wants to study this case and to also keep track of some of the revelations of recent years, I mean, I find myself, um, after spending, you know, more than 10 years working on a grad, on a doctorate and um, writing a dissertation and then doing a, getting it ready for publication after that, that I've studied a lot of the U.S. empire, and yet I find that the, the things that have happened in the last 15 years, because most, a lot of my work is historic, and it really stops in a way at the Reagan, so-called Reagan revolution, which I think is when really the U.S., uh, this sort of a current uh, U.S. deep state or U.S. establishment or U.S. empire, whatever you want to call it, got consolidated really with Reagan. And so every president we get since then is Reagan. But a lot of these events 
in the last, you know, in the 21st century, basically, that, that WikiLeaks has exposed are harder to keep track of, in part because there's so many scandals in such a short time. And I think that's key to understanding what happens with Assange. What, uh, in, in term, maybe you could refresh people's memories here. What do you think are like four, five, six, some of these biggest stories that WikiLeaks has exposed that, that some people, these can be ones that everybody associates with WikiLeaks or maybe ones that we kind of have forgotten that WikiLeaks was actually the, the party to expose. But what are some of these stories? Because you list them in your book and that, yeah. that alone, I think, is actually really useful for anyone who uh, wants to keep, us, keep stuff like this in their library. This is really handy. What are some of these big things that WikiLeaks has exposed? Well, right. You're, after we go through the entire story of this case, and I outline the injustices that are being perpetrated by the U.S. government, at the end of the book, there is uh, a page, a few pages, that it's under the heading of 30 WikiLeaks files that the U.S. government doesn't want you to read. And I broke these down by issue, and I go to the trouble to showcase some of the, I think these aren't the ones that the US media invited people to follow. You might remember in this, you know, oh, it's easy to do, but I think this is one of the under the radar indictments you can make of the US establishment media, because not only when these files came out, did they adopt the line from the US government, whether it's the Pentagon or the State Department, that these files were going to hurt informants, they were going to endanger human rights activists, they were going to affect the ability of the US to work with diplomatic partners, it was going to upend our ability to do the work that they identify with closely as being necessary. That's not my cultural view, but that's a lot of these people who work at these institutions believe. Uh, but they also said, uh, and this was because of what they ended up fixating on, they said that a lot of the cables were just gossip. Uh, you can remember there were things about like Gaddafi's mistress or like the nurse that he was having uh, affairs with or whatever. And then there were files where you you get uh, details about spats between, like uh, like a diplomat said such and such about the leader of France or whatever. And it was like TMZ WikiLeaks. But that doesn't represent at all what we got from these cables. It doesn't represent at all what... I think are the most consequential cables. And I believe that the people who focused on those gossip cables as the thing that they put out there in those first 15 or 30 days, because it was a lot of the headlines were those kinds of things, uh, would agree because even now when they do their coverage of foreign policy, if it's the war in Ukraine or it could be something in the Middle East region, uh, or it could be in Latin America, for that matter. They're going to these cables and using them as an incredible archive to fill in context to understand what is happening now. And we can continue to do that historically. Um, and so, you know, I'll just take like the issue of climate change. I highlight how WikiLeaks published cables 
that showed that there was a deal at the Copenhagen Climate Summit that would basically allow rich countries to emit almost twice as much carbon as developing countries. And there was a bit of a, a detente, uh, so to speak, between China and the U.S. Um, and the idea was going to be that uh, they would sort of um, cancel each other out. And rather than putting pressure on one or the other, they would allow their emissions to continue into the atmosphere, um, and it would be to the detriment of the global south, the countries that are most impacted by catastrophes with the climate. Uh, you have examples of corporate power that I highlight, the one that um, was done by a publication uh, I might butcher the way that you say this a little bit because I'm not French, but it's like Haiti Liberté. And it's uh, this was a revelation about the way that the U.S. government was suppressing the minimum wage in Haiti to keep it you know, extraordinarily low, uh, basically keeping it so that people who worked in some of these factories, uh, I think these are people who would be involved in like clothing companies, uh, that they would keep it about $5 per day for uh, a worker. And that's per day, not per hour. That's not a misprint, $5 per day. Um, this was, and they did, it was, that was similarly uh, one of the main motives behind the Honduras coup as well, 2009. And that story came out in 2009 about the Haiti part. So they were really concerned because Haiti and Honduras are the two, they basically formed the wage floor in the Western hemisphere. And so, I mean, this just shows you what our system rests on. Like, this is not a legitimate thing for a democratic government to be doing, uh, you know, in foreign policy, to be concerned about another country's minimum wage, a country that's that poor as Haiti. I mean, this is so just despicable that they would try to make sure the government doesn't make these, these people any less immiserated because that would impact corporate profits. I mean, this is, uh, there's really no other explanation for what they're doing here. It's, it, it's, it's criminal on a, on a on a scale. It's hard to even wrap your mind around. Exactly. And uh, the other one that uh, this is this may be to me what I think to be one of the more consequential cables. Well, both of those are really important. What what I've just highlighted. Uh, and however, when I think of the secrecy of the United States government. The one cable that always stands out in my mind is one related to drone strikes in Yemen. And I believe General David Petraeus is involved in this cable. Um, if it's not him, then it's John Brennan. Um, but one of those individuals has a meeting with Ali Abdullah Saleh when he's president of Yemen. And they come up with this agreement that the Yemen government is going to say that the strikes that are happening against people in their country, that the, the, those strikes are Yemen's bombs and not US bombs. Um, and as we learn later, the United States was very much involved in these covert operations that involved um, whether they were missiles from ships um, uh, or whether they were actually unmanned aerial vehicles that were being used to launch these missiles, uh, they were engaged in strikes against alleged terrorism targets. And this is where we see the beginning of the kill list. This is where we see 
the beginning of the, uh, as Jeremy Scahill referred to it, the assassination industrial complex, uh, where they developed this whole kill by committee. And at the meetings, they pass around these baseball cards with people's faces on them, and they select who's going to be assassinated that day, rather than capturing them, putting them on a ship, bringing them back to Guantanamo. They had determined that bringing anybody to the United States for a military tribunal or for a trial was too cumbersome, and it was easier to extrajudicially kill those people. Right. Yeah, this is uh, the Yemen business is, is really... Uh, Grim. I mean, they this that kill list for the the drone strikes is part of it, and then there's the uh, the current ongoing war. Yeah, uh, and then even the back in the, a long time ago, I think the, I don't know what year this was, but I don't, the story I think Alex Rubenstein broke it, where it was like George Tenet had uh, asked to have someone who was their guy who they'd arrested on terrorism charges connected to the coal bombing. They asked to have him released, and it turns out that it was Anwar al-Awlaki, uh, most like, in all likelihood, that, that the CIA said, this is our guy, can you let him out? But if you know who Anwar al-Awlaki is, like, <laughs> he's a dude who helped uh, the hijackers, 9-11 hijackers, get uh, housing and such. And uh, then he, was, he had meetings in Washington, and then George Tenet sprang him from jail. I mean, this is very strange. And then Obama kills him in a drone strike. So these drone strikes are like a part of this whole era as well. And it's all so scandalous and we kind of forget about it, but this is, I mean, you have a whole, you have a whole lot here uh, of these different um, things that they've, that WikiLeaks has revealed. So this is all, uh, I think, very useful. Um, what, what happened with Assange to, I mean, he, he had legal troubles going back a while. So maybe, you can sort of go through some of the justifications, the pretext that they've used, which yeah. I mean, to me, as someone who follows, was following this stuff at the time, I was like, this is, this is obviously bogus, but let's start with the sex by surprise thing. Uh, what, yeah. what, what happened with that? And how did that ever become the thing that it decided on? Because it seems so ridiculous, even at the time, by even by us standards, this was so transparently bogus. I think it became the thing that, was used to neutralize Julian Assange because of his personality, uh, because of the kind of crusty manner in which he might act. Was 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 uh, you know, we ha we have to remember that there were stories that had been printed about what it was like for the New York Times or the Guardian to work with Julian Assange that absolutely attacked his character in a manner that was grotesque you know for an organization that was given access to these documents and was gifted the opportunity to work on reporting on this material their executive editor bill keller turns around and publishes a magazine story that suggests that julian assange is like a bag lady um, like you're like like some grandmother that doesn't know how to take care of her hygiene and says that he's smelly, that there are like dirty socks all over, that he's up at all hours of the night and doesn't sleep like a normal person. All this garbage to make you not 
see Julian Assange as a decent person. And, and I think feeding into that was this idea that like, if he's that awkward, if he's that bizarre, well, and can you imagine what he does in the bedroom when he's meeting women? And so from that point onward, they, I believe that we have a lot of evidence now. It's mostly circumstantial, but the extent to which one, they're still fighting and hiding these records from people. I'll, I mentioned my friend and colleague, Stefania Marizzi earlier, and she's got major Freedom of Information Act lawsuits that are unfolding. And the one in the UK um, does involve trying to get records on the communications between Sweden and uh, the Crown prosecutors or the prosecution authority in the UK about this extradition case that stemmed from the allegations of sexual misconduct. And they're hiding them. And they've also destroyed documents as well, and they won't give them to her. Uh, and uh, this is the case when it comes to the United States government. I mean, now they can invoke that they have these indictments against Assange and they don't have to share the material. But uh, I will say that I didn't go into much detail with the sexual allegations because it is not part of the legal case that is against Juliet Assange. But it is important to make clear that it is a pretext. It's how we got here. It's how he entered the embassy because he had a fear that if he stayed in, uh, well, he had a fear that if he went ahead and complied and allowed himself to be extradited from the UK to Sweden, that then Sweden as this country with a close partnership with the United States would hand him over to the U.S. to be prosecuted for the very thing that we're talking about right now, the very thing that is the core of the book, because um, I haven't said it, but I'll say it now that in case anybody's confused, what he's being prosecuted for are these 2010-2011 documents that came out um, over 12 years ago. And so uh, he... Um, is not being prosecuted for allegedly sexually assaulting someone. Um, and he's not being prosecuted for anything related to these other pretexts, which we'll get to, but he enters the Ecuador embassy. He gets asylum, which the U.S. government refuses to recognize. It says a lot about our government and the way that they pursue foreign policy, that uh, they will not acknowledge the institution that was protecting Julian Assange. Uh, Rafael Correa, when he was president, lefty president, gave him this protection. Michael Ratner, as his attorney, a uh, very esteemed, um, incredible supporter of WikiLeaks as a human rights attorney, he was putting out the theory behind why it was essential for Julian Assange to get this protection in the Ecuador embassy. And he lived there in the embassy for a number of years until about 2017, he's the target of a spying operation that we believe is backed by the Central Intelligence Agency. We know from court documents, and there's a parallel case that is unfolding in Spanish court, although it has stalled, but it's a case against David Morales and UC Global as this smaller kind of Blackwater type operation, although they're not involved in killing people. In this case, what they're involved in doing is doing surveillance for, uh, I guess, shadow governments. 
and they are targeting the Ecuador embassy in the most aggressive manner possible. Uh, and we can go into more detail later, but this is just to connect the storyline here and, and show that the sexual allegations are why he ends up in the embassy, uh, but then there are other reasons why he ends up being pressured and forced out of the embassy. The reason why he gets forced out is because you have someone like Mike Pompeo and you have other people in the CIA who decide to mount this campaign to turn Ecuador against him. And uh, they're upset that these Vault 7 materials get published about the CIA's offensive cyber warfare capabilities. And also, we must not forget that there are these yarns spun by the US press um, and other parts of Western media that Julian Assange and WikiLeaks have become a Russian intelligence operation um, that they got these emails in 2016 about Hillary Clinton's campaign from a cutout that is linked to Russian intelligence, uh, that they have published his material in a way that's orchestrated to prevent her from winning and help Donald Trump become president. And it becomes, it's not the core Russia gate scandal theory, but it is the, it's a part, it's connected. Uh, although there's nothing that's ever proven, even Robert Mueller's investigation, like a lot of these things that we were subjected to dealing with, they were never able to corroborate any of the allegations against WikiLeaks. Um, and they'll say, oh, well, maybe it was encrypted and we just weren't able to identify what they were doing. But they've never found any clear association between Russian intelligence and WikiLeaks. It's in indicative of a decline of the U.S. empire and how they're not able to just sort of run things the way they did it in the past, that you end up with, they end up doing these kind of brutish things where they, like lawfare that's like overt, overtly political, and it's, it's obvious, and then at the core of it, there's always some like assertion or some core bullshit thing that is never substantiated. And then as it as it it's not that they they ever get they never get to the bottom of why they they would have been able to move forward with like you know some of these things against Assange or the the warrants against Trump you know the the eavesdropping the FISA stuff against Trump which actually seems dubious or later the RussiaGate you know the core of RussiaGate. It's like they, they, there's no there there, and yet it never becomes a scandal because there's no investigative power to like investigate the top, the sovereign entity of the U.S. And so we're stuck with these stories that are never fully explained. And I think the sex, the sex by surprise thing in Sweden is a part of it. That the my understanding was that one of the the, the woman involved was um, got, she, that they were friendly after the fact. And before the fact, and then, uh, uh, and then she had some connections to like groups that had done work with Cuba and like USAID or something like that. Or she had some strange connections where you're like this this person is odd, like an operative of some kind who may not even be especially 
you know, high level or anything like that. But she seemed to have these strange connections to, to intelligence that it's like where her behavior is just not explicable otherwise. And then, but it doesn't matter because they can just, they, they, that part of it, that part of the story, the, the sex, the, the dubious sex charges that actually did play a role in this saga by, as, as you say, getting Assange to seek asylum. He was, yeah. that, that's, that really is a, the beginning of his ordeal here. Essentially his imprisonment is, yeah. it, you could say, you could say it begins with him fleeing these uh, absurd, um, charges against him and then the, the next one maybe it's the next sort of bogus charge that they come up with is this one involves another really weird character this like augustus gloop fellow um that's not his name of course uh siggy siggy thorson yeah <laughs> siggy thorson this i mean this guy is even more dubious than the sex the sex assault uh i know yeah came. I mean, who who is this guy, and how did he how does he play in the story, and then how does it unravel? Yeah, so Ziggy, I mean, he makes he makes Adrian Lamo, if you know what I'm talking about, look like, uh, it just look like he might have been involved in like civil rights work when he targeted Chelsea, and and for those people who don't know, Adrian Lamo was the one who was working for the FBI who ends up chatting with Chelsea Manning about the documents and goes on for a couple of days. And as it appears when you follow the conversation that she had before she was arrested, it's like he's trying to get her to incriminate herself and constantly like confess to crimes, even though he says, you know, I'm a pastor. You can, you can confide in me. I'm your friend. Um, and then, you know, she just keeps talking because she was desperate for somebody who understood her. And so then in this case, Ziggy is a far worse figure in my, per in, in my opinion, um, and much, and, and far more unsympathetic. Um, the sociopathy that he has, it's incredible. Uh, so, uh, this indictment that was put out in, 2020 in the summer was a third indictment and the Trump administration, or I suppose I should be specific and say the Trump justice department updated their case so that they could make the hacking conspiracy. He didn't hack, but I'm just using that in layman's uh, the conspiracy to commit a computer intrusion charge um, was weak. And so they added all this additional narrative to prejudice the case and make it harder for Julian Assange to defend himself as not being a hacker and or someone who engaged in hacking while doing this journalistic work for WikiLeaks. And they bring in Ziggy. And Ziggy, if you ask WikiLeaks, Ziggy has lied about the extent to which he was doing work for the WikiLeaks organization. But in some way or another, he was doing volunteering work he was involved in the WikiLeaks store operations, and he embezzled at least $50,000 from the WikiLeaks store while he was involved in uh, whatever work he was doing. He had some connection to Assange. He was uh, at one time or another in the same space with Julian Assange. They're pictured together. I think that Julian Assange wanted to trust Ziggy, but Ziggy betrayed him. 
and Ziggy turns to uh, the Federal Bureau of Investigation or the FBI, and he's willing he's willing to rat out Julian Assange and to give them anything uh, because um, I think he's afraid that the federal government in the United States is coming for Julian Assange, and he doesn't want to get in trouble as well. Uh, he's potentially compromised in different ways, right? Doesn't he? Aren't there? Didn't he get in trouble for? I don't remember. Yeah, what. I'm going to get to that. Things like he's a, he's a sex yeah. pest or something like yes, that. Yes, yeah. So, so let me get to that. I was just filling yes. in the details of like how he gets into this case in the first place, uh, because he did go to the FBI and agreed to play some role as an informant. But at that point, when he goes to become an informant, there's a limited usefulness to Ziggy. And it just shows you how desperate the FBI was to cobble together any little thing they could to go after Julian Assange. Because if Ziggy is all you can come up with as an informant, he doesn't really have access. I mean, we're just think of like the psychological or conspiracy thriller that you might watch from Hollywood and how the feds get this informant. And they keep leaning on that informant to go do something. But they know that he's not able to get close to their target. And the drama is, you know, are they going to be able to push this little guy over the edge? He's not a little guy, but are they able to push this Ziggy character over the edge to where he actually does something? Because they want him to go, like, bug his computer. They want him to do this eavesdropping. They want him to go to the hall where Julian Assange is on house arrest and further their efforts to surveil and uh, monitor what he's doing as WikiLeaks editor-in-chief. As, as you say, Ziggy is a sex pest. Ziggy has targeted minors. Ziggy has asked them for favors, coerced them into giving him sexual favors. Um, he targeted uh, at least uh, one or more underage minors, uh, people who, you know, that, so that technically makes him a pedophile. Um, and uh, one younger boy was unable to bring his case in court in Iceland for whatever reason and having no recourse ended up committing suicide because of what he went through. And also Ziggy comes up with these wild embezzlement schemes. Uh, he, he talked about them openly. Um, in the book, I detail a conversation between Bjartmar Alexanderson and uh, him and Alexanderson is from Stunden and at some point the FBI lost control of their prized informant and he went to this journalist and talked for like nine or ten hours and recanted several claims that are in the indictment which I go into detail in the book uh, but these are things that are said to bolster the computer crime intrusion charge. So basically, it's pretext. So what they're doing as prosecutors is they say that uh, Julian Assange is accused of helping Chelsea Manning break into a military computer. And we can get into why that's a load of bullshit. But the charge is that. And then... What they're doing is they're saying, in order to get you to believe that Julian Assange would try to get Chelsea Manning to break into a computer, let's tell you about all the other times that he was targeting systems. And they make up this stuff about um, going after Icelandic 
systems or uh, targeting police vehicles or uh, other things of that nature, wanting to like jam the ability of Iceland to respond to emergency calls, something of that flavor. And it's all made up. It, and, and Ziggy says that that's not true. That's not what happened. And then Ziggy says something about hacking uh, a banking institution to get access to a document, like a whistleblower file, a known whistleblower file that was like out there floating around on the internet and was encrypted. And well, that's that's made up too. And so he recants this. And these are claims that are in the indictment. So these are known lies that are in the indictment that the FBI's own informant has said to a journalist now, don't have basis. And uh, so he's really questionable. In fact, he was imprisoned within the last two years. He was taken to prison by Icelandic authorities under a rarely invoked law where you can put somebody in jail just for the purposes of preventing them from committing further criminal activity. Because, I, think it sounds, I think it seems yeah. warranted in his case. I, 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 yeah. I can't really say I oppose that if, if, if it's demonstrable that this person is a, is a clear and present danger to, uh, to society uh, and to children. Well, he, well he, wrecks, he wrecks companies. He calls them and he tries to extort business uh, executives or business managers he promises them goods and services, and then they they pay him out. And then when he doesn't provide them, he like absconds and leaves and doesn't give them what he promised. And I don't know why these people are falling for Ziggy. I don't know what his talent is, but apparently he's able to go around and pretend to be somebody who can offer you certain services, and people... Get, they, they fall for it um, and then obviously by not providing what you promised uh, you're you're committing some kind of a crime and so they've tried to stop him from doing this and he just keeps doing it over and over again and he talks about it like with this journalist he, he talks about what he's doing and so this is a sociopath um, somebody who is definitely mentally compromised as an individual and not because the U.S. broke him. I mean, in this case, we talk about Julian Assange and what he's gone through. But as far as I could tell, there's this person, Ziggy, has never been the subject of any targeted government oppression. This is just who he is, and this is who the FBI has partnered with. But that's standard. You hear about so many informants or cooperating witnesses or however you wanted to refer to them, who the FBI aligns themselves with. You can... You can go down the list of all kinds of cases in the U.S. where people were framed up on entrapment schemes and accused of plotting terrorist attacks against the United States and how they targeted young Muslims who were in broken families or had were terribly impoverished. And then there's wild nutball informants that go after them and try to get them to engage in criminal activity. And it makes sense that someone like Ziggy would be who they would go after to try and take down WikiLeaks, that they would try to make him work because he is a sociopath. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems that they should have been able to uh, 
listen, ground. I mean, I guess you just can't make Ziggy conform to any ground rules, but like he could have been valuable to them if he could have just shut up and not committed any more crimes. But that's too much to ask when it comes to this guy, apparently. Well, it's even acknowledged. I, I, I wish I could go find the exact detail, uh, but there is a a document that I read where the prosecutor, his name was Kellen Dwyer. He was working on the indictments against Julian Assange. Um, and he, their office was contacted during the course of the extradition. And he mentions that they have this informant um, and that they might want to think about how they use material from him because he's not going to be good to put on the stand if they have a trial in the United States. Uh, so I really don't know what they do. I don't know what these allegations are. And frankly, they're probably there just to ensure that he's extradited. And my prediction, we can come back to this if a trial happens, although I really hope that it is avoided. But if a trial were to happen, we can come back to this. And my one prediction I'll make here on the show is, they'll recant all of these allegations that have been put forward by Ziggy just so that they don't have to deal with him being put on the stand as that's the only way they'll be able to enter any of this into evidence. Right. Yeah. So this, you have the Chelsea Manning, you have the sex by surprise gambits. You have this uh, uh, bogus quasi hacking thing. Uh, and other charges that are in the Siggy, the Siggy universe, the Siggy verse, or whatever. <laughs> and uh, then you you have another big fraud in this whole debacle here, and that is the uh, R- RussiaGate and the the, yeah. the Hillary Clinton and DNC emails. Um, what uh, they they end up trying to uh, tie. Assange to Russia on the basis of very dubious evidence that that doesn't really play out. Some of it involves Roger Stone as well. And I mean, how do they ultimately, is there any shred of evidence that Assange ever had anything to do with Russian state actors or that any of this involves Russian state actors? Because to my knowledge, this is not the case. I don't think you lay that out in the book. So how does, how do they, through innuendo and other things, how do they attempt to tar him with this uh, Russian Russian agent uh, brush. Yeah, they, they, there is no evidence, uh, but they do tie him to it because of the emails. Um, and there are multiple email publications. Uh, there's DNC emails, there's the Clinton campaign or the Podesta emails that get published by WikiLeaks in 2016. And I don't have the greatest grasp of the timeline of events in 2016. I think it's very confusing. There's a lot of different things going on behind the scenes. There are other journalists that are better placed to investigate. And there are some who are placed in a good position to investigate who have decided that they do not want to look into this any further, I think, because it might contradict some of their conclusions about the chain of events that happened in 2016. But Julian Assange maintains that he did not get the material from a state actor. That's what he said in multiple interviews. Um, He was asked uh, very pointedly by Amy Goodman on on Democracy Now! Um, He did a presentation at one conference 
Um, I think he was also asked about it during a New York Times live stream, which I write about in the book, because there are some really absurd exchanges that take place in that discussion. Uh, and he maintains that the material did not come from a state actor. But let's just be clear here for a moment that even if it did come from Russian intelligence, the material was definitely newsworthy, and he would still have been within his right as a journalist to publish it. It just raises the question of, should you have told people where you got the material, and should that have been part of our understanding if it came from the Russians? Now, I don't have to go down that route because I think that like, until we have any evidence from Julian Assange that he's lying, well, we have to believe that the submission that came through the system for WikiLeaks didn't have um, any indicators on it that made anyone believe that it was coming from like a Russian state actor. Could it be a cutout? Could it be somebody associated? I don't really know what they you mean by never, some. You can never I, ever disprove that. That that's what I don't really know you what can, you mean. You can like never disprove that. Like Daniel well, Ellsberg was not a Soviet agent, and I, I, Dan is a, a friend of mine. I'm saying I'm not saying that he was, but I'm saying any case like this, you can never definitively prove that someone is not a, a clandestine actor of some kind. You cannot disprove a, a, a negative like that uh, but, in that way. So this is just madness. Like well, it's, it's also it's, like it's, it's the burden of proof is on them to show what to, to show to show something like this if he's acting as an agent of a foreign state. I, I would apply this to the US and and think of how you might be able to call a journalist here in the United States uh, uh, like a Russian cutout or someone who had ties to uh, well, sorry, I'm fumbling my words. I would apply it to the United States and think of an example where someone who's a journalist could be accused of being aligned with U.S. intelligence and linked to it and then maybe called like a cutout by, I don't know, someone in China or Iran or North Korea. And uh, it just, just, just like imagine someone at the New York Times has access to information in the CIA, publishes that information does it as part of their job and just by virtue of being able to get that material gets treated as a cutout. Is that what they're saying? Is they're saying that the person who gave the material had access to the Russian government? So that makes them uh, like all, all because they had a source that could get this material. But I, it's just, it's so confusing. They've never been able to nail it down and it's intentionally murky because the only reason is so in my head, it's not about getting the facts. It's not about understanding what actually happened with WikiLeaks in Russia. It's just got to be murky enough that you can slap it on WikiLeaks and make it difficult for people to trust in what they do. And you just the goal through all of this over the last decade, whether it's the sexual allegations or accusing WikiLeaks of being aligned with Russia is to make it no longer effective at what it does. They want to remove it as a source for whistleblowers or human rights advocates or activists or whomever is a source. Could be attorneys, lawyers, weapons inspectors, whatever. Anyone who would choose to give material to WikiLeaks, they want to make them think twice 
about whether that material would be able to have an impact because, oh, you gave it to the organization that's run by the guy who's accused of sexual assault. Or, oh, you gave it to an organization which we know is aligned with Russia. And the people in this government in the United States, they know what they're doing. They have used these methods of discrediting people all the way back to COINTELPRO in the 1960s, all the way back to the methods that they had for targeting anti-war activists that the CIA employed as exposed by Cy Hirsch in the 1970s. They know exactly. Even further, like the- Yeah, to the Red Scare- well, this James Callender uh, uh, on Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton leaking all that dirt about his having a slave yeah. uh, mistress and such like that. I mean, this kind of leaking information and stuff is a, is a means of political warfare uh, yes. in, in these liberal in liberal democracies from the from the very beginning. Exactly. Yeah, that's a good example. And I think they want us to discuss whether it's true or not. Because that just distracts us from what WikiLeaks does as an organization. It distracts us from, and I'm not saying we shouldn't engage, and I think it's important for us to debunk to the extent that we can. But it doesn't really matter. Even if we were to prove that they were wrong, it's had the effect that it wants. And because we're talking about it, and two, uh, you know, they're never going to accept that we've settled it. Like, if, if, if I could prove that WikiLeaks didn't do it, then they're going to find somebody from, I don't know, Bellingcat or wherever who can just pop up and give the theory new life so that we keep going back and forth and on and on and on. And it's never settled because it's not supposed to be. They want us to talk about this and it's effective at discrediting WikiLeaks. Yeah. And this, I mean, when you look at the dark arts that have been applied against Assange, I mean, they, a CIA tries to assassinate him at, at some point using contract, you know, uh, agents in, in Spain. You also have this really bizarre, the, the Gucci for 2.0 thing, which uh, seems to be also related to another WikiLeaks um, disclosure, the Vault 7 thing, because those documents that Gucci for, for no real reason leaks uh, and, and publishes in another venue. And then my understanding is that these are all, this is all a bit murky now because it's years ago, but that some of the documents that Gucci for 2.0 puts out have incriminating fingerprints pointing to Russian intelligence. And then they say, aha, look, this is Russian intelligence. But then a later WikiLeaks disclosure, the Vault 7 files, uh, reveal that the CIA has all these tools for manipulating the malware in order to falsely attribute hacking of materials to whatever actors they choose so like it, it seems pretty clear that i mean in my mind the gucci gucci seems like a u.s plant uh this gucci for 2.0 guy because what does he really accomplish except putting material out there that implicates uh russia and injects russia into a story when it hadn't been before but using methodology that that conforms exactly to what the CIA has uh, secretly been developing and that only Assange exposed. So how does this Vault 7 thing, I mean, this is a, this is a major part of the whole story. Uh, how do you think that this is key to understanding some of the chicanery that they will employ? I mean, if they will do this stuff with the hacking and we know they tried to kill Assange, then it really opens up and we know about the, we know about the dubious charges they leveled against him. I mean, they're throwing everything at him 
um, that they can other than like drone striking him. I guess that's the one thing they haven't done yet. But I mean, this is how does it show that the, the state is the lawless party here and not Assange? Yeah, I think that the offensive cyber warfare operations of the United States are as unregulated, if not more so, than the drone warfare that was being engaged in a decade ago or more. I mean, now it's been longer. It's been, a, you know, 10 to 15 years. Uh, but now, you know, with drone strikes, I don't think it is accountable, but they've at least come up with a process you're supposed to go through this person and this person, and we've seen a downward trend, and there's way, way less of people getting vaporized by the drones. That's not the case with the cyber warfare, as far as I can tell, because these documents came out. There weren't any hearings. There wasn't any interest by anyone in Congress to challenge what the CIA does with these tools. Uh, they maintain that whatever operations are necessary in order to counter Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, go down the list of all the official enemies of the United States that are constantly opposed by us. Uh, they think that these are useful and necessary tools uh, that uh, I think they might even spin them as defensive sometimes, but they really are offensive cyber warfare. We find yeah, that, that, that is so absurd. How do you even make the case that being able to falsely attribute hacks to people is somehow protecting us against hacks i mean yeah that's it, true it's, it's um but they always try to invert it um and you know we have a they call our we, i mean i don't have to tell you they call our country's military the defense department when all it's basically doing is starting interventions around the world on a daily basis right, and they changed the name right at the point that the u.s was going for global empire it's only after <laughs> world war ii when they had already made the plans to, to be a global empire that then they changed the name to defense. It used to be the Department of War. Uh, so these cyber warfare tools that they have are like planting malware in the devices. They're common consumer electronics that people are purchasing. Uh, they could compromise people's phones, laptops. We know that they had put uh, devices or uh, tracking devices in Samsung televisions that people were purchasing um, or that they had ways that they could access those pieces of technology. Uh, we know that they were targeting WhatsApp and Signal, which are very well-known encryption messaging tools. Uh, of course, there's more to the way that they can target those that we know, thanks to NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden. But you know, we get to see from the CIA in these Vault 7 materials that they have a range of capabilities that are almost identical to the arsenal that the NSA has that has been exposed. So like, while the NSA has that, and they're allegedly have oversight over it, think of the CIA having all of these, and nobody knows a single thing about what they're doing and why they're doing it and what they're starting. And it might have devastating consequences. But we have like attacks on Iran that uh, that are cyber attacks that almost nearly set off massive explosions of uh, like what nuclear reactors, right? Like they are engaged in this activity in a way i remember the stuxnet thing was was one that was uh really uh just dramatic and and its potential to cause damage and so uh these these tools when they're exposed by mike pompeo uh, when they're exposed by wikileaks it makes mike mike pompeo just like so livid at wikileaks 
for what has been done because it is so important for the CIA to be able to engage in this right now, their digital army. Um, and then, of course, also they were owned by WikiLeaks, and that really upset the CIA. I write about how in the in the book uh, we know that the CIA thought that they were going to avoid being a target, uh, and they laughed at the State Department and the Pentagon for being uh, a victim of WikiLeaks and for being exposed, and they thought they were going to escape it. And then these files came, and like you said, the v- the fingerprint, the idea that you can mask it, make it look like. It came from China or Russia. There's like a thought experiment here. What if it turns out that 25 years from now, when we can finally know what is going on with our government during this period, because that's how long it takes, that's the secrecy industrial complex that you have to wait a quarter of a century to find out the truth of your government, or maybe longer. You might have to wait 50 years, depending on what they're hiding. And in the case of the JFK assassination, they're still hiding information, even though it's been over 60 years. But let's just say we get to that point and those records are declassified and we find out that the CIA or some other agency connected was, uh, or some other group connected was involved in passing the information to WikiLeaks and made it look like a Russian cutout. And I don't know why for, but maybe they were baiting WikiLeaks to try and publish information that they could link back to an enemy of the United States, all to discredit WikiLeaks. Um, I don't know other than the fact that these are the types of things that you read about and that you have agents discuss all the time in order to discredit people who are challenging them. this is resolved in a way that can avoid a long and lengthy trial. But if there is a trial, you would hope that it leads to some spectacular disclosures. But knowing the U.S., they would almost want to treat it like a they would go to some crazy measures. I'm not even sure they want to extradite him, to be honest. I think that maybe the status quo is preferable to, I mean, in a way, the reason they have, I mean, they have, in the Ellsberg case, they avoid prosecuting Ellsberg because, in part because he there's so much misconduct on the part of the Nixon administration, but there's there were other things going on with the Ellsberg case that I think allowed him to uh, escape with his freedom, in part that there was a, the establishment had really turned on Nixon. And the more you look at Watergate, it, it, there's a lot of reason to think that like it, it wasn't just these it wasn't just these good guys who were like the president is breaking the law. It was like these were the people that were against Nixon were people. In the CIA, who had done terrible things, the military brass. I think even people like uh, the Kissinger and the Rockefellers were a different had di- differences of opinion with Nixon on certain things. So that is in that issue, Ellsberg and the ending, winding down the Vietnam, helping to contribute to winding down the Vietnam War, and also damn discrediting Nixon. These were things that powerful forces were in favor of. Assange doesn't seem to have anybody on his side in this way. So that's why this. I mean, in the Ellsberg case, they were going to send E. Howard Hunt and the, his goon squad to incapacitate, quote unquote, Ellsberg, which maybe meant to kill him uh, very yeah. well. That's how he takes it. But in the Assange case, they like we know that they or we have pretty good reason to believe because of court testimony that the CIA was trying to murder him. And yet this is not it, it is not a, 
are commonly stated in the mainstream press that like this alone should lead to the dismissal of charges against Assange. They're finally coming around and saying, you know, New York Times and such that like, well, maybe you shouldn't prosecute Assange. They meekly say more or less. But uh, this is so but this is a wild time here. I don't I want him to be exonerated, but I would really like to know all of these details. Why do you think that the U.S. is damaging its its own its own myths? I mean, I like I, I think that the U.S. has this imperial repressive apparatus. It always really has since the beginning. I mean, you just you slaughter the Indians and you create a whole legal regime about around human slavery. Uh, you know, and then Western expansion continues. And then you, as soon as you get see the shining sea, they launch sort of colonial wars like the Spanish-American War and they take over Hawaii, the inter-World War One. I. I mean, the U.S. has just inexorably had this imperial force to expand, you know, pro- propelled by greed largely. And uh, so this is, this is this, this oppressive apparatus is there, but the mythology of liberalism and freedom are part of what has legitimized this whole enterprise. Why do you think that they are risking this just to go after Assange? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think that it, it it's definitely the key question because when you explore it, that's that's why I arrive where you are. I have my serious doubts about whether they would actually fly Julian Assange to the US and put him on trial. And uh, like, let's be clear here. I think you would agree is it's implied in everything that you said. They don't have to extradite Julian Assange. And I know that might seem bizarre to people, but if you understand what they're doing is lawfare and that it's just using the process to punish Julian Assange, then they they really don't have to have a trial. They've already succeeded in accomplishing their goals. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange is no longer the editor-in-chief of WikiLeaks. Uh, As you look at this from their perspective, he's no longer leading the organization. He's not able to speak out and advocate for the organization. The person who is in charge as editor-in-chief, Christian Harafson, does a decent job, but he doesn't have the backstory and the connection to WikiLeaks that Assange did. He's not somebody who commands attention like Assange, which might be good for them. But then their organization is in a really difficult period because they can't dedicate any resources or funds to leaks. They can't work on building up their submission system and protecting it. They can't work on their website. I've actually, during the course of working and researching my book, I had trouble accessing the U.S. cables because their website has fallen into a state of disrepair. And that's not entirely their fault. I don't think they have the money to keep it up. But also there are outside actors that constantly target the website and make it hard for people to access. We know this going all the way back to when the material was first posted and they had to have mirror sites so that people could read the cables. Um, And so uh, it can't do anything more than be this support group that helps Julian Assange while he's being prosecuted. 
they're not really publishing leaks. We've had maybe two or three leaks published. Handful of leaks since Julian Assange was thrown out of the embassy and arrested and detained. Uh, so the U.S. government has accomplished everything that it wanted, and it's made an example out of WikiLeaks. Uh, there are people who associated with WikiLeaks who aren't coming back to the United States ever again. They have exiled themselves. They're in Germany uh, and other places, I presume. And But I know of a few people who are actually unindicted co-conspirators who are in Germany. I write about them in the book. And so you don't have to extradite Julian Assange. You can have him in a state of legal limbo. Um, where we are, I mean, this is a good point for me to let people know where we are in the case. We are at an appeals court level, waiting to find out if the High Court of Justice will hear Julian Assange's challenge to the extradition decision because it was authorized last year. And we don't know what's going to happen. All that indecisiveness plays into the hands of the U.S. government. And every month is great for people. Uh, because it means it's less likely that a trial begins before Joe Biden is pursuing re-election in 2024. You have to think of the politics of all of this. And then after the appeals court, if they say that they're going to hear his complaints about the extradition decision, well, then let's say they rule against him. He goes to the Supreme Court level in the United Kingdom and that starts the clock right back to adding more months to the timeline. And we're easily into 2024 before they have to make any decision about whether to extradite Julian Assange and put him on a plane. Uh, and then after the Supreme Court, though, he can go to the European Court of Human Rights, which would mean that he would stay longer in detention in the UK. Good for the United States government. So then let's say the European Court of Human Rights rules against him. It probably would be 2025 or 2026. So at that time, I'm not going to get into U.S. politics because they're fairly unpredictable at this point. But at that time, whoever was in power could decide whether they really wanted to put him on a plane and bring him to the U.S. and put him on trial. And then that's when your question would be the most important. You know, after two or three years from now, are we at a place where the myths don't matter anymore? Are we at a point where uh, it's it's just power for whatever reason is necessary? It's peace through strength? Or do we actually care about these human rights illusions enough that we would maintain them and say, oh, you know what, Julian Assange, because this is what they could say. This is what they said about Chelsea Manning. That Chelsea, that, that, that they could say Julian Assange has been in detention if it's 25 or 2026. 20, At that point, he would have been in prison for six or seven years. He would have been in detention for six or seven years. That's longer than any sentence he would probably receive in the United States. I say that knowing that his attorneys are trying to impress upon the courts in the UK that he has a maximum prison sentence of potentially 175 years. But I've covered these cases enough to know that you get sentenced for each charge. You serve each charge concurrently. They don't usually stack. And he probably would not be given a, a sentence that was something extraordinary like 100 years in prison. He would probably get something that was closer to like 
seven to 10 years. This is what people who have been prosecuted under the Espionage Act would tell you as well, like CIA whistleblower John Kiriakou. And so at that point, they might go, all right, he's already served seven or eight years. That's punishment. And we'll let him go. And at that point, who knows what kind of state he is in mentally and physically. He already has had a stroke, a mini stroke in detention, and his health is bad. Um, and he's a father who's missing out on the best years of his kids' lives, and he hasn't been able to be with his family, and that wears on him every single day. And so really, the U.S. is winning, and I'm with you that I don't think they have to put him on a plane. And it is also an open question whether they would take that risk. I do think there would be a serious meeting where they would go back and forth about whether to abandon the extradition or not when it came to the point that all of his appeals were exhausted. Yeah. I mean, I, I, he, they are winning in this very narrow instance, but I think that their winning is actually, when you look at it, this is the empire losing. I mean, that they have to go to these levels and mess with one guy in such a heavy-handed, just fascist way. I mean, the, the fact that they would even attempt to... The espionage is a fascist law just as it was written in the books. I mean, it was written to suppress dissent against an imperial adventure that was really undertaken for financial interests uh, when it looked like all the loans that they had made to the Allies in World War I might not get paid because, you know, Germany had defeated Russia and uh, they might not, they might be able to, you know, keep the war going. Then the U.S. enters, and that's really decisive in World War I. And it was really about the U.S. going for wanting, you know, more of a global role and making a whole lot of money off of mm -hmm. this. So, but the espionage is bad enough the way it was written, but to apply it internationally is just uh, yeah. so, so absurd. It's, there's no reason, there, there's no legal basis for applying this to a foreign national this this law which is absurd in the first place even the way it's applied to americans i mean this is so over the top uh and i so, and i think the u.s empire really is losing because ultimately the rest of the world as soon as there's an alternative to doing business in this exploitative dollar system that the u.s can create you know at, at its whim and allow its banks to like create you know engineer these enormous financial collapses that when the dust settles the top 0.01% always end up owning more than they did before, but nobody can really escape this dollar system. I mean, this is going, I think that the system is unraveling. Uh, and that's really the backstory to like, to us, to Assange and what they're, what they're doing to him. So I think this case is really uh, important sort of microcosm into the, of the U S empire and it's, it's fake championing of liberal democracy and what's what it's really all about i think you can see it with the assange yeah. case yeah no i agree you've done a great service writing this book yeah yeah just let me say quickly that i do agree uh that the winning comes at a cost and you've seen it uh you could in fact fold in a clip if you chose to uh though you don't have to but the one that stands out is the leader of azerbaijan talking to this woman from the bbc and as uh, he is lectured about press freedom, he says, well, you know, you're holding this journalist, Julian Assange, in detention right now. You're holding him. And so you've got someone who has a horrible record as press freedom. I would never hold up this man who is using this gotcha as this person that we should defend. And I'm not on his side. But you've got this leader 
invoking the Julian Assange case so that he doesn't have to deal with complaints about repression in his own country. And uh, that's what they're doing. We've heard Chinese, the Chinese foreign minister, you mentioned the Assange case. Um, I believe there's been Russian officials that have invoked the Assange case. Um, and you know, there are a half dozen or so other countries that as they are questioned about the way that they treat journalists in their country, they say, well, we don't take this criticism from the United States. Look at what you're doing. You put a journalist behind bars. Yeah. I mean, this is notable, not only the fact that they are, um, that they would think this, but that they're actually saying it, that I, like that the U.S. has fallen in prestige to the point that you can kind of tweak them a little bit more in the past, even if you're a small country like Azerbaijan. I mean, the U.S. has a whole dark history there. They basically yeah. installed a, they, they affected a coup in the early days of the Cold War because it's so important in terms of geopolitics of oil on the Caspian Sea. I mean, right away, the U.S. was, was there. Its hands are very dirty. Uh, heroin dealers, al-Qaeda, CIA officers. It's really like, this was right after the Cold War, which just shows you that the Cold War was never really, it was always, the U.S. empire was always the driving thing. It wasn't, oh, no, we're about to be taken over by communists. This was like an, a pretext to go and take over the whole world. And Assange exposed a lot of this. And, and they went, and the, you know, just the criminality of the whole thing. And so, like any good criminal uh, organization, they uh, try to eliminate their uh, their critics and any opponents. Um, and, and Assange is experiencing that, and it's uh, it's it's really horrific. Your book is Guilty of Journalism: The Political Case Against Julian Assange. Uh, Abby Martin wrote the foreword for it, which is very cool. She did the uh, cover art for my own book, so that's oh, that's uh, awesome. Something funny, a funny thing that we share here. Uh, where can people follow your your work? Uh, yeah, so uh, just to say the book is at sevenstories.com or censoredpress.org for those who are interested. And my work can be found at thedissenter.org, D-I-S-S-E-N-T-E-R.org. Um, that's where I follow Julian Assange's case and then also cover the more wider, sprawling war on whistleblowers. Very good. So do you have any last words about how it, we might be able to try to help support Assange or what can people do uh, besides buying your, your book to learn about the case? How, how might we be able to help Assange? What I usually leave people with as a call to action is just to make the point that there is a far higher level of engagement in Europe and in Australia. Uh, you actually can point to parliamentarians who are following the case and who speak out against it. And while they're not able to use their influence to break through and convince the United States to drop charges, it, it does show you that there is some momentum that's on the side of supporters. We don't have that in the United States. I can name two or three people in Congress who are on the side of dropping charges against Assange. Um, they're working in a way that is almost impossible for them to achieve anything. And, and though I don't have much faith in the political system in the US, I do think that what Congress people do is a, they are dependent on what they hear from their constituents when they decide to take up certain issues. And so, you know, if for some reason 
you hear this conversation and you're motivated to do something. I would look for a Q&A with any U.S. government officials that are currently in power or a Q&A or a town hall with your local congressperson or senator. And if you had a chance to ask them a question, raise this issue of Assange, make it clear that you care about it. This is usually what I say. It's my shot in the dark um, because I do think confrontation matters. Um, Abby Martin's a good person and a good example of confrontation, confronted Antony Blinken at that sham summit of the Americas, and that went viral, and it really exposes a whole lot. So one of the things we have is that we might be able to embarrass them. We might be able to make them look bad. All those myths that you talk about on this show, they do occasionally want to cater and extend and perpetuate those. And and if we make it hard for them to continue those myths by showing that they are myths, then they do occasionally back down every now and then. So that's the only reason why I put that out as an idea. I don't expect anything to change because of Congress people, but I do think that when members of Congress are following this case and know about it and might have opposition to it, that it puts some pressure on the Justice Department to reconsider their actions. And uh, I'll just say what Daniel Ellsberg has told me is all we have is a small chance and everybody's going to do what they can and try in the same way that we have a small chance to expose what is going on with governments and prevent nuclear Armageddon. Uh, we, you know, we have a small chance to stop Julian Assange from being extradited to the U.S. And people should do whatever's in their limited power if they do care about this case to raise their voice. And uh, that's that's where I'll leave it. Well, Kevin Gastola, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks to Dana Chavaria for producing this episode and to Mock Orange for providing the music. Thanks also to Kevin Gastola for joining us today, for writing Guilty of Journalism, and for all of the other work he has done on the Assange case over the years. I think the parafascist U.S. regime is very bad, but with things like the Assange case, we see the U.S. increasingly dropping the liberal democracy mask. This is not good. The only thing worse than parafascism is full-on fascism. So for all of you out there listening to this podcast from somewhere other than a solitary prison cell, think of Julian Assange and mind the light. Something's on the grass It's killing spots and making trash Something done for me Just think of nothing